Welcome to episode 108 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is federal analyst Anshul Sag. Let's get started. Um, I did miss being on the podcast last week, but I was in Paris. I'll talk a little bit more about that during the podcast, but my first topic is around Nokia and their partnership with the U.S. Air Force to test spectrum interference between military radar systems and 5G networks. In particular, it's mid-band spectrum. So what are the implications? And, you know, Anshul, you and I have been covering all of the contention and concern around um, altimeters and, and 5G and that sort of thing in exclusion zones. And so this is um, sort of a follow-on, you know, from my perspective to that. Specifically, um, what Nokia and the Air Force are trying to determine is can military radar coexist with 5G networks that operate in the 3.1 to 3.45 gigahertz uh, range of spectrum? And um, the military is also leveraging uh, Nokia's uh, RAN intelligent controller, which is referred to commonly as a RIC. And um, this is really um, going to pave the way for further military installations of 5G networks. We've talked about um, applications uh, with the Marine Corps for transportation and logistics. And um, I believe you covered another military use case as well. And so I just think this will further the effort to make sure that, you know, wh whatever is done from a 5G perspective doesn't interfere with critical military radar, um, you know, in, uh, instrumentation. And uh, this covers land, air, and sea radars, as well as air defense systems. So, this is pretty critical just to ensure that there's no blowback with respect to uh, military operations. But I'm wondering if you have any input. I did not see this specific one with the US Air Force and Nokia. Yeah. Um, but it does make sense to want to make sure that there's no interference. What I did think was interesting, um, specifically around um, interference issues with the 5G, was that OneWeb came out a couple of days ago saying that they agree with SpaceX's assessment that um, there is potential interference to 5G in 12 gigahertz, which mm -hmm. we know SpaceX has been very vehement against. Yeah. Um, so it looks like the the, the uh, satellite, um, you know, LEO guys are, are starting to gang up together against 12 gigahertz 5G. Mm -hmm. um, but on this topic, I don't have any specific insights or, or thoughts. Gotcha, no, that's cool. Well, let's go to your first topic. And I saw this news as well, but you want to talk a little bit about Verizon's new 5G welcome unlimited plan. And it's unlimited, but it's lacking something pretty critical. Yeah, so it is uh, their new plan. It's $65 plan for one user, which is really not actually that great of a deal. But if you get up to four users, it's actually 30 bucks a month, which yeah. I think works for, great for a lot of families. Um, I think the big issue with this plan is it doesn't include 5G ultra wideband, um, which they call UWB. And yeah, the yeah. problem is, is that the way Verizon has segmented out their 5G offerings is they've got 5G nationwide here, and then they've got 5G UWB, which encapsulates both millimeter wave and midband. So right, the right. real 5G network with the performance um, that you would expect from 5G is gated away from these users and they can only basically use 5G low band and, and DSS. And they're realistically only going to be getting LTE-like experiences. 
So there really mm -hmm. isn't much of a benefit to them to upgrade from 4G um, or even upgrade their devices. Um, so it's, I, I don't really know what it accomplishes other than moving more people to 5G. Um, there is a significant um, kind of promotion where I think they give like $240 per line to switch in the form of a gift card. Um, so there are some monetary benefits to making this switch, but in general, experientially, uh, if you're already a Verizon customer, you probably won't see any difference. Uh, and if you're switching from another uh, carrier to Verizon, uh, there is a possibility that you could have a, a lesser experience if you were already on mid-band uh, on AT&T or T-Mobile. So mm -hmm. I don't think it's a great plan. Uh, I didn't, when I first talked about this plan um, and I thought about it, I thought it was a great deal uh, because of the $30 a line, but then I didn't know that it was lacking EUWB, uh, which uh, changes my perspective on this deal considerably. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, no. Um, so from my perspective, I mean, this is obviously an attempt for Verizon to uh, to churn some of its competitors' customers over, and, you know, and there's certainly a benefit to to migrate people, you know, onto 5G, even if it's like at the at the very kind of kind of low band, you know, kind of spectrum position there. But um, I'm wondering if there is any plan on Verizon's part to, you know, bring people over with a super cheap plan because I mean, $30 for a tier one postpaid plan is, is, is pretty aggressive and pretty compelling. And I believe, you know, to your point, um, a lot of customers may not be uh, cognizant of the fact that they're not going to get, you know, the true benefit of, of, of the, the ultra wideband service that Verizon has been focused on. And there could also be sort of a scheme. I don't want to call it a scheme. It sounds pretty nefarious, but there could be a plan to, to bring people in sort of at the low end and then, you know, do some sort of, you know, promotional, you know, kind of time period on this particular plan and then try to upsell them, you know, into a, you know, into a higher tiered plan. But, you know, time will tell with that. You know, we, we've talked about, you know, Verizon's FWA service. I think, I don't think we did that on a podcast, but I think you and I were trading some some tweets on that. And it was, you know, it's it's again that FWA service is pretty inexpensive if you have a, a line of mobile service, but the performance is terrible. So, um, you know, it it just seems like you know this could be like a money grab sort of strategy on Verizon's part to bring subs over, and then maybe try to upsell them in the future. But who knows? Time will tell. But. Let me move to my second topic. And I talked about Paris briefly as we got started. And um, I thank Diana for um, standing in for me last week on the podcast since I was eight or nine hours, you know, time different uh, from the two of you. And uh, I was actually at the, uh, the Lorwan World Expo in Paris uh, chairing a panel on smart cities. And I got to spend time with the Alliance. Um, I've spent time with the uh, Lorwan Alliance over the years. Now, from my perspective, they're, they're, they're really sort of hitting their critical mass after several years. I, I think it's definitely also helped that Sigfox has uh, died a very slow death. And Sigfox is really the competing technology with, with LoRa. And if our viewers and listeners aren't familiar with LoRa, it is uh, an IoT connectivity platform. Semtech provides the silicon. And it's really designed for very low power, low bandwidth applications. And so in, in one of the media sessions, um, you know, I asked, uh, you know, the Alliance uh, uh, director as well as their, their marketing lead, 
how they, they felt, you know, it was positioned via 5G. And they really felt like, you know, for very specific applications with IoT that are, again, very low power um, and also very low bandwidth, that they felt that, that LoRa was a great solution. And actually, I walked the expo and I spent some time um, in several of the booths. And, you know, and for applications such as, uh, you know, power metering and that sort of thing, uh, I think LoRa could, could serve a great purpose. And there are also a lot of things that the LoRaWAN Alliance are focused on to um, help drive sustainability goals. Uh, actually, on my panel, we, it was really, it was a great um, kind of uh, cross-section of use cases. So we had someone that was talking to LoRaWAN applications in uh, Cary, North Carolina. Um, another panelist was talking about um, applications in Australia. Um, and uh, the third was talking about applications in, in Germany. And they ranged anywhere from sort of in, in North Carolina, it was like outfitting um, a brand new park with a lot of IoT sensors to do a lot of interesting things, uh, such as monitoring noise and, and concerts there. I, I know in my hometown of Austin, Texas, if, uh, if residents are, are close to a music venue and they want to complain about the noise, they have to get their smartphones out and they have to use what's called a 311 app uh, to report that. And so in, in North Carolina, they're using sensors to measure um, you know, sound and that sort of thing and, and to manage lighting. And, and, and that was interesting. And then in Australia, the use cases were around water conservation and management. And uh, what's really interesting, this was in Queensland, um, you don't have traditional water systems. So a lot of residents actually have, you know, little miniature cisterns or water tanks, probably not miniature, they're quite large for their homes. And um, those have to be filled constantly for, you know, for obvious reasons, because there's no well water. And they were talking about how LoRaWAN is being used, uh, the, the sensors are being used, so that, um, you know, it can signal to the replenishment water company to roll a truck with water when it's needed versus having to roll a truck to do a physical inspection. So obviously uh, there's definitely cost savings there and, and kind of mitigating truck rolls and that sort of thing. And then in Germany, the applications were very manufacturing oriented that didn't require you know, low latency or, or you know, fast throughput and that sort of thing. So you know, my, my takeaway was Sigfox's demise really kind of leaves LoRaWAN as sort of the de facto um, IoT connectivity platform for low bandwidth and low power. And you know, it is a purpose-built network. Um, certainly the mobile network operators such as T-Mobile, and you and I have talked about T-Mobile and Deutsche Telekom and the TIOT initiative, uh, they're gonna monetize their investment in, in 5G um, you know, to do things like IoT. But I, I think LoRaWAN can coexist um, time will tell um, the momentum that it drives, but you know I sort of walked away with a different perspective, um, having you know spent about a week there. So I don't know if you have any thoughts, but would love to hear them if you do. I don't have any thoughts. I do think I think if you're going to talk about IoT proprietary standards, um, I think we can say that LoRaWAN won. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right against Sigvox, um, but I think ultimately right now. LoRaWAN is going to be one of those things where, um, you know, it's going to exist for a long time. And I think the, the model of a lot of the industries that they work with um, will benefit from that. However, I do think there will be a lot of competition from 5G, especially massive IoT. Yeah. Um, and I think it'll be very interesting to see how LoRaWAN can fit into that. 
um, or or doesn't. Um, but I think long term, it would be best for everyone if LoRaWAN um, were to be wound into the three GPP standard somehow to mm -hmm. you know allow for it to be part of the standard um, and for it to be you know just to improve IoT in general. And I don't know if you heard anything about that at the show, but I'm always curious about LoRaWAN and how how proprietary it will will always be. Yeah, you know, um, no, no, no discussion around, you know, any sort of intersection with 3GPP and LTE and, and 5G, but that, that is an act, act, that's actually a very interesting consideration. So it's something that I can take back, you know, to that team and, uh, and dive into two further for sure. But let's talk about your second topic and uh, Erickson announced earnings and you want to provide a recap on that. Yes. So Erickson reported earnings. Um, and their stock tumbled almost 10%. Uh, it's actually, this, this earnings was, you know, came out, I think, yesterday, uh, or actually even today. Um, and they, um, they reported uh, that they missed um, on net income. Uh, so they missed on, and they also, their, their margin also fell. Um, and they basically said that their, their, their kind of costs to, to, to doing things has gone up, uh, mm -hmm. which doesn't really surprise anybody, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but even with analysts, um, you know, projections, uh, I think they, they still missed um, their, their, the analyst targets. But what's interesting is they said that they remain committed to reaching their long-term target of an EBITDA margin, including restructuring charges of 15 to 18%, yeah. no later than in two to three years. So there's very much a long-term horizon for Ericsson's profitability. Um, but the thing to consider is that um, they still have a fairly decent growth margin, uh, mm -hmm. gross margin, um, and that they as a company, um, they, they've been having a, a difficult time this last year. Um, I think ever since their stock peaked uh, in April of 2021 at about $14, they've kind of been sliding downhill since. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's really fair um, for their stock to have slid that much considering how, how much 5G buildouts are happening. Yeah. Um, but I think that it just comes down to the overall makeup of the company and that you know 5G itself is not everything for the company and that um, there's going to be a lot more build outs out there and you know Ericsson isn't alone they have competition from Nokia and Samsung and I think that um you know they they have a long road ahead of them in terms of you know turning things around and and making sure that the, the company um you know doesn't get embroiled in lawsuits about bribery and, and things like that so right. it's always a challenging thing when when a company that's a technological leader uh struggles on on their share price but um I, I think Overall, Ericsson is still a pretty strong company, and I think um, they have a, a pretty good horizon for them down the road as 5G continues to build out. And I mean, there's still so many 5G networks to, to, to build out that I think they still have a lot of opportunities. But um, to, to their point, you know, um, costs have gone up. Yeah, you know, and that's no surprise. I mean, we're, you know, we're seeing inflation around the globe, and we won't get into the, the details of that. But I also, I'm also bullish on Ericsson's long-term prospects as well. Um, we've talked about their acquisition of Cradle Point and how they're integrating that into an enterprise business unit. 
Um, I stay pretty close to Ericsson. I know that they recently went through a reorg. That's public information. That's nothing that's, uh, that's confidential. And they're really kind of getting their ducks in a line to really go at the enterprise pretty hard. Uh, Cradle Point's enjoyed a great install base there. And, you know, and private networking is a tremendous opportunity. So as, you know, as they sort of unify that, that strategy and they go at the enterprise market, I think that presents them with some significant upside. Cradle Point has, has been in the private um, cellular networking category for some time and they've got you know, quite a you know, um, amount of momentum behind them. Um, we've talked about Nokia Enterprise in the past, you know, they've, they've sort of been leading the pack, but I really do believe you know, once you know, the integration is fully realized and we start seeing the fruits of that, that, that there'll be some upside there. And to your point, Ericsson has also you know, had some black eyes you know, in, the, in the press with um, you know, some of the news about um, you know, the bribery and that sort of thing. So we don't want to believe that. And, I think I think a lot of that um, is affecting the current stock price, but uh, we're not financial analysts. You know, we we are both industry analysts, um, but um, but I, I do believe that there is tremendous upside for them in the future, especially with the Cradle Point um, acquisition. So, but we'll uh, continue to to monitor that and report back as things materialize. But let me move to my third and final topic. I'm also going to talk about Ericsson. Um, it came out that Ericsson, Qualcomm, and uh, Thales. They're a French company. Um, they've been, Thales has actually been, you know, very focused on, you know, GPS mapping and, and that sort of thing. They've, um, they, they, they market a lot of different, both consumer and commercial grade products with respect to navigation, but um, they're all three coming together to test 5G deployment through satellites. And so, you know, what, what, what's the impact, you know, longer term, but just a, a, a little bit of detail behind this. So, um, you know, following the 3GPP approval for satellite-driven 5G non-terrestrial networks (NTN), yeah, their, yeah, their their goal is to use satellite infrastructure to sort of um, complete out the, the the global 5G coverage. So, what's really interesting is that by leveraging low Earth orbit, um, what the what the goal would be is to deliver 5G connectivity to areas that are are extreme in in nature and. By extreme, we're talking the middle of the ocean, the, the Amazonian rainforest and that sort of thing. So this is, you know, from my perspective, super compelling and extending coverage because, you know, the, the best backhaul that you can use is fiber, but, you know, you do have undersea cables in the oceans, but um, that's not gonna serve as backhaul for, for, for mobile 5G and certainly in places like the Amazon and, in these other areas, you know, you're, you're going to have these challenges. So, you know, it, it'll be interesting to continue to monitor this, um, this partnership and the progress there, but you've got really, you've got three companies that are, that are the best at what they each do coming together and it could be quite compelling. So what do you think? Um, I think it's interesting because Talis is definitely one of those companies that like, they're very much in the satellite business. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what a lot of people don't know is that sorry, Qualcomm, their their heritage is actually in satellite. Um, they started as a logistics company um, utilizing uh, satellites to figure out the location of trucks. Like that was their core business mm -hmm. before they started doing smartphones. Yeah. So uh, I think Qualcomm has a lot of satellite um, heritage that's kind of buried in their technology. Um, and the three companies working together to 
improve LEO for 5G, um, specifically in smartphones, which which is a very key point there. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be something that really improves the, the usefulness of smartphones in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, we could down the road see, you know, smartphones used with satellite as the anchor because you're much less likely to lose satellite signal than you are anything else. Right. And you use satellite to transmit voice and, and text, like low, low, low throughput data. Right. And then everything else is just gravy on top of that. And um, being able to, you know, I mean, I think the biggest challenge for smartphones really with satellite is just satellite acquisition time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's really going to be one of the biggest challenges I think you'll see for implementing satellite and smartphones. And I think long-term or at least short-term, okay, let's say near-term. I was going to say short, long-term, but that's just near-term. <laughs> right. um, in near-term, I think, um, or midterm, you'll see that uh, maybe satellite is added as a carrier. And then over time, as it becomes more reliable and power efficient, it could become primary carrier. And then, you know, you have essentially uh, internet coverage, but, you know, either low throughput or just text and voice anywhere you go in the world, because we already know that voice works over satellite. We've seen, yeah. it, you know, there, there are companies that exist to do that. Um, but I, I just think that low earth, herbal, low earth orbit presents a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Um, and this could also make, you know, doing uh, 5G over 12 gigahertz even less attractive. So yeah. um, I think this is a really interesting partnership. And I think this will be one of the strongest ones out there uh, long-term. And I think we'll see more companies building these kinds of satellite partnerships to um, more tightly integrate uh, the solution to make it shippable. Yeah, you know, and as I think about it more, it could really open some really interesting sort of go-to-market sort of business opportunities as well. Because, you know, today, you know, the, that the traditional satellite service, to your point, to a to an end device, it's slow. It times time. It takes time to acquire. It's quite expensive. I mean, I, I have a little spot device that I use when I hike in Colorado, and it's quite expensive, right? And so. This, you know, as the partnership matures and uh, platforms mature, there could be some really interesting business models that spin out of this as well. And um, it also sort of addresses one of my big passion projects, which is figuring out how we're going to bridge the digital divide. And there, we've talked on prior podcasts about all the different elements that are in play. I mean, Leo is part of it, FWA is part of it. Um, Just overall, you know, investment in, in fiber and leveraging government subsidies to to install fiber in areas that are underserved where for a traditional you know deployment the, the payback would would take decades right and it just wouldn't make sense and so it's it's going to take more than just writing a checkbook and so that's what i really love about this 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 particular partnership is that it could really open up some very interesting new business models but we'll definitely uh, we'll keep tabs on it and report back as things develop but let's move to your third and final topic and you always like to talk about open signal in the rankings and um, do you want to provide an update? Um, we saw this come across um, our desks this week about T-Mobile. Yeah, so I, part of the reason why I like these uh, to report on these different uh, speed metrics, whatever you want to call them, is because um, I think we're going to have a lot of competitiveness over the next year or two in mid-band. And it's, it's interesting to keep track of where things are in time. 
Um, but right now, it's very clear that uh, T-Mobile is very much ahead of their competitors. Um, in, in the Open Signal report, they said that in terms of 5G download speeds, T-Mobile's now looking at a um, 171 megabit per second. Um, and that is compared to 53 at AT&T and 72 at Verizon. Mm-hmm. So um, they are double, more than double or more than triple their competition, which is um, considerable and yeah. can be almost entirely attributed to, you know, the, the, their, their C-band rollout. Yeah. Um, and, and not even that, not even their C-band rollout, their, their, their 2.5 gigahertz mid-band rollout because their C-band they haven't even rolled out yet. So yeah, yeah, good um, their, their, their mid-band is extremely strong and there's going to be another auction coming soon. And that's going to be very interesting to watch because mm-hmm. it'll fill in some holes that they have in that network. Um, and then on top of that, their upload speeds uh, were also higher than Verizon or AT&T's, um, which I think is also contributed to its 2.5 gigahertz uh, band because yeah. their, their low band spectrum is actually much worse than AT&T and Verizon's in terms of holdings, which is where you find a lot of uplink upla- up lives. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of availability, um, they, T-Mobile's network was, their 5G network was available 40% of the time compared to AT&T's 18% and Verizon's 10%. So there's still a huge gap in terms of availability of T-Mobile's network compared to their competitors, Um, which I think if you remember when we started this podcast, I said that T-Mobile would most likely um, be the leader for the foreseeable future in terms of coverage because of 600 megahertz. And that their competitors like AT&T did stuff like 5GE because they were afraid of this very number difference. Um, And I think long-term, you know, T-Mobile is only going to continue to grow that number um, as will their competitors, but that 600 megahertz network is just going to be an unbelievable coverage layer that their competitors cannot compete with. And they also, there's a, there's a 5G reach, which is a, uh, a category that uh, open reach or sorry, open signal created uh, which is a one out of 10 point category. And they scored a 7.8 out of 10. Um, I don't really know what the formula is for that. So I don't really um, contribute it to much, but yeah, upload, download and availability, I think are, are key metrics that I think are important. And I have to be honest with you, I am seeing T-Mobile's network in more places um, than I did before. And it's mm-hmm. faster. Um, I didn't do this speed test, but someone locally uh, who's a, also a, a kind of a tech nerd um, tweeted out that he saw 1.5 gigabits per second on T-Mobile's mid-band um, in, in San Diego here. So 1.5 gigabits per second on a mid-band network, no millimeter wave, which is... That's pretty killer. Yeah. Yeah. I've, the fastest I've seen is a gig, but it, it's it's just, I, 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 I struggle to, to comprehend that kind of speed on mid-band because... It just isn't something that we really could think of until now. Um, yeah. And, you know, as more spectrum becomes available in different bands, uh, I, I suspect that we could see it go up even higher. And, and ultimately, the, 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 the average speed will continue to rise as more, more spectrum becomes available. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not surprised about the coverage piece. Um, you and I spent a 
quite a bit of time with T-Mobile and, you know, Neville Ray in particular. And that has been, you know, goal number one from the beginning with their deployment was coverage. And, um, and they continue to, to build upon that. And to your point, uh, Verizon and AT&T and, and DISH as they roll out their network, you know, they'll, they'll get there and they'll catch up. But, you know, the, the other advantage is just, you know, these, these 2.5 gigahertz assets that T-Mobile brought from the Sprint acquisition and just really gave them a jump start. And you're right, you know, we've been doing this podcast for over two years now. And, um, you know, we, we, can, we can take our victory lap on the fact that we, we predicted this. We predicted that, you know, T-Mobile would be well ahead of um, all the other tier ones for a good two to two and a half, you know, plus years. Uh, that's coming to fruition. But uh, C-Band is uh, ramping pretty quickly. And uh, it'll just be interesting to see. It'll be, I think it'll be interesting when we're, we're talking again in December um, to look at the open signal reports of the world and, and see where yep. everyone's at. But this I has been we'll another great podcast. Interest. You know, why don't you take us home, my friend? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Welltown Tech and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.